Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. This is The Takeaway, and it is good to have you with us on our politics show. Now, it went down in New Jersey this week. On Tuesday night, Democratic incumbent Governor Phil Murphy debated Republican challenger Jack Chitterelli in the final debate of the New Jersey gubernatorial race. There are only two candidates running for office, but three opponents showed up at the debate. Murphy... Chitterelli and the crowd. We funded. Thank you, audience. Every time. I like to believe that y'all out there, as you're listening to the takeaway, are either cheering or booing with the same kind of Jersey level enthusiasm. And I got to tell you, it's pretty wild outside the debate hall, too. Former New Jersey governor, Republican Christine Todd Whitman, is among the leaders of a new movement to purge Trump loyalists and reinvigorate mainline conservatism within the Republican Party. They're called the Renew America Movement. We need regular Americans to step forward, and we're calling all heroes. Now, this week, the Republicans of the Renew America Movement Well, they endorsed two New Jersey Democrats and a Philadelphia Democrat in those bids for state legislative seats. And while New Jersey Republicans are fighting for the soul of their party, Virginia Democrats seem to be sitting on the sidelines of their gubernatorial contest. In Northern Virginia, a Democratic stronghold, possible problems for the former governor. Early voting has already begun in the Commonwealth, and the numbers in Virginia's bluest counties are way down compared to 2017. Fairfax, Arlington, and Alexandria sent just a sixth of Virginia's early votes so far. That's a huge drop from the last governor's race when the Blue Bastion ultimately delivered a full third of Virginia's early votes. Okay. Down in the Peach State, Georgia's election battle is less about candidates and campaigns and more about fairness and fraud. On Wednesday, a judge in the state dismissed the final lawsuit from the 2020 election litigation. He ruled that the plaintiffs have no standing to sue the Fulton County Election Board. But the decision comes on the heels of two Fulton County election workers being fired for shredding registration forms. So I'm thinking it is probably pretty safe to assume that confidence in the state's electoral system is less than robust as the 2022 midterms approach. There's a lot of state politics shaping up around the country, and that's where we begin today's Politics Roundtable with Jessica Taylor, the Senate and Governor's Editor for the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter, and Zach Montalero, state politics reporter at Politico. Thanks for having me. Hi there. All right, I want to begin with you, Jessica. What were the takeaways from the governor's debate in New Jersey this week? I think that it, there's passion that people on both sides and, you know, New Jersey certainly has a reputation for kind of being a rough and tumble. So I wasn't really surprised. COVID issues um, have driven a lot of people to become more engaged. And you have Governor Phil Murphy there that has put on some pretty strict restrictions and 
this to me is sort of a test of whether voters approve of those. We do see they have that in polls. You know, he's mandated masks in schools. Um, A more controversial step he took recently was actually mandating uh, kids uh, over two if they are in daycare or certain things that they now have to wear a mask. So that's gotten pushback. That's gotten pushback from Chitterelli. Um, But of course, New Jersey was at the height of the pandemic to begin with. But, you know, cases have been more under control than even some, you know, Southern less populated states that they've had to deal with. But uh, I see COVID as a major issue uh, happening here. And I think you saw that reflected in perhaps the debate. Let me come down here to you, Zach, and ask um, what you make of this Renew America movement and specifically that it's led in part by Christine Todd Whitman, the first woman to serve as governor of the state of New Jersey and sort of a Republican of a different era. Um, But, you know, clearly here making bipartisan uh, uh, efforts uh, to, to actually bring in different kinds of folks uh, into the system. Yeah, you know, I am broadly relatively skeptical of the, you know, anti-Trump wing of the Republican Party. Um, we've seen displayed kind of over and over and over again uh, how well they do within the Republican Party. Now, you know, how many of these voters who were soft Republicans in, in decades past now just identify as Democrats, or identify as independents who are voting Democratic you know, in these suburban areas that we've heard so much about over the last four years, right? Like, so what what is the crowd that these groups are kind of reaching for? Then that, that that's the big question, right? Did, did most of those people who would you know identify as a Christine Todd Whitman Republican are they already Democrats? Have they already jumped over to the other side, and are they staying there? Um, I tend to believe that at, at this point, you know, the suburban shifts are. are we, we've we've seen the shifts in the suburbs of the last you know four years of the last decade, whatever you want to call it. Um, and and these groups where with people who are former Republican elected officials are, are really the folks without a home at this point. And yet the that um, sort of that dynamic of of a Republican Party like the New Jersey Republican Party, which, to, to be clear, is quite different than Republican parties in other parts of the country. That dynamic that, um, that there was booing and cheering and the kind of um, almost, you know, Trump rally like atmosphere at that New Jersey gubernatorial debate. Zach, does that tell you something about, um, you know, the fact that, that there is still this this acrimony, despite the fact that you've got these like, I guess we're going to call them politically homeless uh, Republicans in the state. Yeah. Um, I, I told me I grew up on the right side of the Hudson River. I'm a native New Yorker. So I'd be <laughs> from New York and not New Jersey. Uh, no, but like it, I, I think that's just, you know, I don't want to call it par for the course for tri-state area politics. Right. But, you know, mm-hmm. we New Yorkers, New Jerseyans certainly uh, a little bit more willing to share their opinions about uh, w- about what they think about their politicians. There was that ad from Governor Murphy, and I think it was only online this week, uh, just kind of poking fun how his opponent, when he was, I think it was city council, when he held a local office, tried to ban swearing, right? And <laughs> only only in the tri-state area, only in New York, only in New Jersey, is that probably a bad thing. Um, you know, I, I... Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's already banned down here in North Carolina where <laughs> I live. Everyone's very polite, like, oh my goodness, is about as bad as it gets. <laughs> Yeah. So, so, you know, I think it's just a, a different kind of atmosphere that, you know, uh, that us New Yorkers, New Jersey, you know, folks in the area carry themselves just a little bit differently. I don't, I don't know if that's any sign of increased acrimony in the state or not. I think that acrimony is already built in. 
So, I'm, you know, we've I've just been talking about the ways that Republicans in New Jersey might be different, but it's also true that Democrats are a bit different there. Um, and, uh, you know, in part because there is that long tradition in the tri-state area around um, the strength of policing, firefighters, first responders. And I'm wondering if Murphy's positions on civilian review boards and also some, you know, additional sort of tightening around police, local police departments might actually alienate some of the potential Democratic voters who could support Murphy? Uh, that That's the big question with not just Governor Murphy, but a lot of Democrats is, you know, as the parties realign and shift, you know, how do you hold on to those sometimes thought of as blue collar jobs? I don't necessarily know that a New York area police or a firefighter um, has much in common with somebody who works, you know, elsewhere and consider himself blue collar. But how, how do you hold on to those blue collar jobs? while also the increasingly suburban, you know, tilt of these parties. New Jersey, very famously, is a lot of suburbs uh, to New York City. Um, it's, it's striking that balance between, you know, can I reach these voters uh, that Democrats have traditionally talked to, you know, blue collar union workers, and while, you know, pushing uh, social, uh, different social messages that are more in tune with some suburbanites. So, Jessica, why don't we just wander on down the East Coast a little bit to Virginia? Uh, I'm wondering what you make of these sort of low numbers that we're seeing with the early voting. Um, you know, Zach and I have just been talking about the uh, the suburbs and obviously Northern Virginia, which in many ways is D.C. light. Um, they seem to be not turning out in the same numbers that we've seen in previous uh, state elections. Yeah, I mean, this is a bit surprising to me because I actually live here in Alexandria and I mean, there's a lot of local elections going on, too, that I, you know, normally I think would be a bigger driver. You would have people more coming out. Certainly there's plenty of signs and, and things out, but we aren't seeing that in the numbers yet. I mean, there's still a little over two weeks, certainly. Um, you know, Virginia, they just made it easier to early vote right ahead of the pandemic, of course, before you had to have an excuse. So, you know, maybe voters aren't as used to requesting those um, in a way, I think it's still sort of more of a tradition of going to the polls here in Virginia, other, aside from the pandemic. But I mean, this is not encouraging to Democrats, certainly. I mean, I'm not saying it's, you know, five alarm fire yet because we have to wait and see. But that complacency is always this is the biggest threat to holding this seat, which, again, as I mentioned, this is a seat that Biden won by 10 points. Um, but as we see his numbers sort of crater nationally, one poll yesterday showed them sort of rebounding in Virginia and McAuliffe having a little bit more of a comfortable lead. We'll see if that was more of an outlier or if other polls are continuing to show it close. But um, that's sort of what, what, where you were seeing Democrats and McAuliffe making this argument in the last few weeks that if you stay home, you could have a Republican. But in, a similar argument was made, of course, when we were seeing sort of lower numbers coming in in the California recall. Now, they had a step taken out for them because every voter there got a uh, ballot mailed to them. So much easier to to just do that when you don't have to request it, go anywhere, different things. Uh, Democrats here in Virginia are going to have to convince them it takes a little bit of work to vote. You've still got to go out and do this. But I think voters are frankly exhausted after the past four years, five years. Um, 
here in Virginia, we vote every single year as well. <laughs> so it can get <laughs> exhausting. Uh, and you're seeing McAuliffe sort of bring in the big guns. Uh, I'm going this weekend. He's campaigning with Stacey Abrams in Northern Virginia and the Hampton Roads area in Virginia Beach. Um, next weekend, he's bringing in probably the biggest name you can get here, um, Barack Obama. You know, he has said he will campaign with Biden. There's been a bit of a question of that as his numbers have have, of course, fallen. We don't have a date for that yet. Um, and so their argument that they've got to make is you have to come out. You can't just sit this one out. But we do see, and a reason why we rate this race as toss-up right now is because the enthusiasm is on the Republican side right now. And that's a big worry for Democrats. Yeah, you know, your, your point about voter fatigue, just sort of in general in Virginia, I absolutely get having grown up in Charlottesville. I'm not sure I knew there was a thing called an election year. It just seemed like elections were like a like dinner time, right? They're just like a, a constant <laughs> part of life. Um, but but I am, you know, it, it is still true, though, um, Zach, that that, for example, we typically in any election that is an off year, so off presidential year, but especially in Virginia where they are off even the midterm cycle, that tends to benefit Republicans, right? Because it tends to reduce turnout. Hasn't always been true in the Commonwealth, though. So I'm wondering if if there is if this just looks like regular cycle to you or if there's something specific about 2021. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the big thing with Virginia is that we've heard this a lot from Governor McAuliffe, too, is that um, the candidate who is running against the party in the White House has almost always run, won the Virginia gubernatorial race for the last several decades. The one exception to that is Terry McAuliffe in 20, uh, 2009, rather. Um, did I get that right? The one time, the one exception to that is when Governor McAuliffe won uh one the first time he ran for office that Bush was that Obama was in the White House in 2013. There we go. And he won. So, you know, if he was to win again, it's cutting against the historical norms. And I think that more than anything is kind of what's going against him is that Virginia, um, Virginia has been that so, swing state. So, Jessica, let's stick with Virginia for just a second. Not only are there these um, big statewide races going on, but all 100 seats in the state House of Delegates are 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 up for bids. Um, most of them are contested. And Democrats have definitely used their like 10 seat majority to pass some pretty sweeping progressive legislation, at least relative to Virginia uh, in recent years. Do you think that boldness is going to be rewarded or punished or just ignored in this election? I think we're not sure yet. Certainly it's created some backlash among conservatives. And you are seeing, I think, some people get activated and motivated. Um, and the state house is very much in play. And I think the question is, too, and this is the argument that you know, Republicans and led for the state for the House of Delegates are making. And then Terry McAuliffe, the Republican nominee for governor, is making is that there needs to be a check in Richmond. So this is what Democrats challenges is that not only is do they have full control of Washington, of course, and I do think also because Virginia and Northern Virginia, especially so close to Washington, I think the gridlock in Congress and not getting an infrastructure or social programs bill like Biden and Democrats want to, to point to, that gridlock I think is hurting too. And then when you have Democrats in control of Richmond too, I think that that factors in voters' minds as well. So education issues, I think, is one of the biggest things that we are seeing Republicans try to use here. Um, I was I went to a Youngkin rally yesterday in Warrenton, which is in Fauquier County, sort of on the exurbs. It's a pretty conservative county, but you have other counties that have sort of 
really switched over the Trump years uh, nearby Loudoun County that was a pretty Republican area now went easily for Biden in the last election. There's been fights at their school board meetings over um, transgender pronouns and, uh, you know, masks and what's being taught in the schools. And um, Youngkin has really seized on uh, uh, something that McAuliffe said during the during the last debate where. He, he said that, you know, essentially parents shouldn't be telling schools what they're teaching. Well, he's trying to hopefully that can energize people. And I do think because of COVID, you had parents at home trying to take care of their kids. They're maybe getting more involved, seeing what their kids are doing, worried about them falling behind, that you do have parents that are perhaps more engaged and haven't been as engaged in politics. I talked to some voters there at this rally there yesterday, I had about 200 people. Um, so education issues are, are playing in here. You know, there's been questions about whether to, you know, roll back gifted and talented programs in, in schools. And so there's a lot of, I think education is sort of at, there on a lot of these issues, you know, policing issues as well for both sides they're trying to, to talk about. So there's a lot of local issues, but I think also a lot of these races have become nationalized both at the gubernatorial and at the, you know, state legislature level too. So, Zach, we are still more than a year away from the the full-on midterms, but of course, gubernatorial races are already starting to heat up across the country. Are there other states? We've been kind of focused here on New New Jersey and Virginia because they're coming up right away, but what other gubernatorial or Senate races are you watching closely? Yeah, so we have 36 gubernatorial races next year, which is a lot. Um, And as much as I would like to say I'm taking a trip out to Hawaii to cover that race, I probably won't be. Um, but you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of those traditional battleground states that are, that are, ex- that have gubernatorial races next year and that overlap with the Senate race. Um, the one I'm probably keeping the closest attention on might be Georgia. Um, that's going to get me yelled at for the other close states, but Georgia's just a really fascinating test case for a lot of different things. Uh, Republican governor, Brian Kemp, as everyone is probably aware, uh, former president Trump is no fan of his, uh, Trump has said at points that he'd rather have Stacey Abrams in the governor's mansion than Kemp. Um, so one, it's we're going to see if he gets a, a legitimate, serious primary challenger that that the former president backs. And that's a real good test case of um, where the party is, where the Republican Party is, how tied it is to Trump. Can Trump defeat an, a sitting conservative uh, incumbent governor? And then the other cases, of course, will Stacey Abrams run for Democrats and everyone hoping everyone by everyone? I mean, Democrats are hoping and expecting that she will. And then how much, you know, how we've been slowly marching towards Georgia being a swing state. Uh, this will be a rematch of 2018 if Stacey Abrams runs and if Governor Kemp stays in office. Um, and it's going to be a fascinating contest. I feel like there's a lot of progressive listeners who might be listening and um, just found themselves shocked to realize that they agree with President Trump on a on an important <laughs> like a political and elections question, which is a preference for Stacey Abrams over um, Brian Kemp in the guben- in the governor's mansion in Georgia. I'm wondering, are, are you also, Zach, watching Kansas or Pennsylvania? Those are the two I've been kind of interested in recently. Yeah, so Kansas is another interesting one, too. There, it's Democratic Governor Laura Kelly, and everyone kind of stops and goes, wait, Democratic Governor in Kansas? Yeah. (laughs) She is the single Democrat governor running in a state that President Trump carried in 2020. She's the only one up for re-election in 2022. Um, So it'll, of course, be a very uh, close race there. 
Um, Republicans feel pretty good. They're, the sitting attorney general is really the only candidate there, Attorney General Schmidt. Um, they feel pretty confident, but it's never easy to, to knock off a sitting incumbent governor. Um, and it won't be easy to defeat Laura Kelly either. There was a poll early from Emily's List, which is a liberal group uh, that backs women, uh, that backs pro-choice women, rather. Uh, and, you know, she's above water. So that's that's going to be a fun contest, if just for the fact that it is a race that there's a Democrat in a very red state and Pennsylvania, too. It's going to be an open state race race. Democrat uh, Attorney General Josh Shapiro is almost assuredly going to be the Democratic nominee. Republicans have a really, really, really messy primary. So we don't quite know how that's going to shake out yet. Jessica, the the um, sort of invocation here of um, of Emily's list is is a reminder that again, all politics may be local, but there are these national issues. Um, to what extent is the question of abortion going to um, be central in the uh, elections that are coming up immediately and into the midterms? So we have seen certainly McAuliffe use it in ads and bring it bring it up in the, in the debates um, because. Of, because of Texas, of course, and um, voters in Virginia are overwhelmingly support abortion rights to, you know, cert- at least certain weeks, um, more than the six weeks in Texas, certainly. And um, Youngkin was also caught on a tracker video where he was asked about um, his pro- his positions, where he, you know, is is pro life, and said, you know, I can't really talk about that right now while I'm running because it's going to lose me independent votes. So. He's been, they are all hammering on that. I, I, how much of an issue it becomes in governor's races, I think we'll see if the Texas law stands. Of course, we have the challenge to, uh, before the Supreme Court coming from Mississippi. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, that will come next summer, right ahead of some of these governor's races. So yeah, it really could play a big part. Jessica Taylor is the Senate and governor's editor for the Cook Political Report. And Zach Montalero is state politics reporter at Politico. And we're going to both try to figure out how to get the takeaway to cover the Hawaii race. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. The 2020 census was a bit of a mess. There were serious concerns from the start about the quality of the count. And according to two new analyses, the census may have dramatically undercounted Black people across the country. According to one of the reports, the Black population could have been undercounted by a rate three times as high as the undercount 10 years ago. For more on this, we're joined now by Mark Morial, who is president and chief executive of the National Urban League and a former mayor of New Orleans. Mark, it's great to have you with us. It's so great to be with you. Uh, Thank you for having me. So let's go on back to the beginning when advocates like you and so many others were saying that there were likely to be challenges. What were the, the key problems even at the start of the census? At the start, we assembled a group called the Black Census Roundtable, which worked in conjunction with an entire coalition of people who wanted to ensure that there'd be a complete, full and accurate count, and that hard-to-count communities that have historically been undercounted would be emphasized in this count. The concerns were early on that the focus of the advertising campaign was not sufficient to really reach the undercounted communities uh, or the, let's say, hard-to-count communities We also had concerns that census cut back uh, by uh, 50% the local offices where people could go in and pick up a form or a person could go sign up to become a census enumerator 
or door knocker. Those were early concerns about uh, the plan for this census. Now, as the census evolved, COVID hit. And when COVID hit, uh, I knew we had a larger problem. There would be a larger problem with the census. So we urged the Census Bureau to double down, uh, pause the census, but use the time to, uh, if you will, modify its plan to ensure that people would be fully counted. And that included a, a suggestion that they extend the deadline for people to be able to sign up. Uh, we also had concerns, and this is important. The way the census works is there's an initial stage where people had an opportunity to fill out the form online, a second stage where they had an opportunity to fill out a form uh, by paper, and a third very important stage, which is where enumerators or door knockers go out all across the areas that have not yet uh, responded to the census or homes that have not responded to the census to get a response. Uh, I think in this instance, that third phase may have fallen substantially apart for many, many reasons. And we raised those concerns. And then we were alarmed that uh, after the census extended the time, Trump administration officials got involved in it and the time was cut back. That led to a federal lawsuit uh, that we filed with a number of other plaintiffs, including a number of cities, to uh, force the census to extend the time further. We won that case uh, both in the district and appellate courts, but ultimately the Supreme Court allowed the census to end the count early. All of the signals, all of the flags, all of the concerns were there throughout uh, that there would be an undercount. So I'm not surprised. I mean, I'm highly, highly peeved that census did not uh, take the additional steps. And when I say census, the professional staff at the census is excellent, and they were urging that these steps uh, be taken. I think they were overruled from the top. I think you'll probably find that the White House interfered uh, and sought to politicize this census as they did from the very beginning with the addition, the attempted addition of the citizenship question. All right, so you've laid out for us how this happened, or at least in part, how it looks like it happened. Why does it matter? It matters to everything when it comes to political power and economic power. Uh, the census is the fundamental, if you will, foundation of reapportionment and redistricting all across the nation. And when you have an undercount, you have a dilution of power, a dilution of the ability of African-Americans and other hard-to-count communities, Latinx and others, to be fully, fully included in any reapportionment plan. For researchers, the census is essential to understanding how many children do we have in the nation and where do they live, the growth and distribution of the population. And then for the federal government, uh, it's used to decide how many important programmatic dollars are distributed, not only amongst the states, but also by states for the distribution of formula dollars uh, within a state. And this census did not accurately and fully count the American people. And these originalists on the Supreme Court who typically are quite concerned, right, conservative members of the court, quite concerned with original intent. And yet one of the sources that you've located for us here in how this undercount happened was a decision by the court to go ahead and end the count. The Supreme Court is less about original intent and more about conservative philosophy. The idea that in COVID, the court would not require the Census Bureau to extend the time period 
for as long as is necessary for them to stand up uh, and knock on every door that had not been counted six or seven times as they intended to do. Uh, We know not now whether they even knocked on every door. We know not now whether they hired all of the enumerators because uh, typically with the census, transparency is a difficult thing. So we are asking uh, for congressional hearings so that there be some transparency. We're asking census to release their own undercount report and not delay it. Very important that there be transparency as to what happens. There'd be an examination and a look back uh, because of the concerns, uh, not only that this undercount occurred, but that there was political interference. And that's an important thing because traditionally, no matter who the president is, the Census Bureau have an opportunity to fully, fully do what is necessary to ensure a count. We're talking about midterm elections that are likely to happen under these districts that will be apportioned and redistricted based on what may be a faulty census here. Is there any way to fix it? Well, there are states, I believe, that who are looking at ways to use a more accurate set of numbers for their own state legislative redistricting. And I certainly would encourage states to examine how they can ensure that this undercount does not unconstitutionally and illegally dilute the votes of communities, urban communities and black communities and Latinx communities. Secondarily, it's clear there will be a round of litigation challenging many, many congressional district maps and state legislative maps. But let me point this out. This is why it is essential that Congress pass new voting rights bills. It is essential because the same Supreme Court that cut the census short has been literally hell-bent on gutting the Voting Rights Act. Two very, very bad decisions uh, in the last 10 years, one in 13 and one last year, undercut the Voting Rights Act as a tool to try to address abuses, uh, unconstitutional discrimination, uh, racially motivated gerrymandering in the reapportionment process. So we've got a lot of work ahead of us, but as a census, uh, we need the House of Representatives, the People's House, to hold comprehensive hearings and do a look back on the census, make a determination as to what occurred to ensure that if it can be remedied, it's remedied, but to ensure that this does not occur in 2030. Mark Morial is president and chief executive of the National Urban League and a former mayor of New Orleans. Mark, as always, thanks for talking with me. Thanks, Melissa. Have a great day. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and this is The Takeaway. It's good to have you with us. There was breaking news on Friday morning of dozens killed and many more injured after an explosion at a Shia mosque in Kandahar. And this comes just one week after a deadly suicide bombing at a different Shia mosque in Kunduz. It's a reminder of the agonizing conditions facing the people of Afghanistan since the U.S. ended our 20-year presence in the country. More than 200,000 refugees have fled Afghanistan in recent months, and approximately 55,000 have relocated to the U.S. since mid-August. 
According to the Department of Homeland Security, about 40% are eligible for special immigrant visas because of the work they did aiding U.S. efforts in Afghanistan. But for other evacuees, it's unclear what their legal status will be. Many entered the country not as traditional refugees, but instead under a temporary legal process. That means many of these refugees currently do not have a direct pathway to permanent residency. For more on this, I spoke with Naid Samadi Baharam, Women for Afghan Women's U.S. Country Director, and we started by talking about how she's doing. It has been one of the darkest time of my life. I am 40 years old, and I have lived my entire life through the four decades of war in the country, but I have never felt this hopeless and helpless in my life. And it's not actually the story of me, but every single Afghan anywhere in the world right now. What makes this moment feel so much more hopeless? I think everything around it. I think no Afghan anywhere in the world thought that after 20 years of hard work, spending trillions of dollars, thousands of lives lost, we will go back to where we were 20 years ago. And this is, I think, really heartbreaking for all of us. I want to talk a little bit about your own experience of resettling in the U.S. in 2006. What was that process like for you? Um, With whom did you work? Um, And uh, how were you received? So when I came to United States, I did not come as a refugee. I got married and I came here. My husband was an Afghan-American. So my experience was very different here in the U.S., where I was a refugee um, in Pakistan. My mother died because of a bomb explosion in Kabul um, when I was 10 years old in uh, 1990s. And we had to flee the country and go to Pakistan and were refugees for 15 years there. Then when I came to United States, my experience was very different than what other people are experiencing right now. I was not a refugee, but I have also had left my family, my friends, my country, and came to a new place. I felt very isolated. I felt very alone. And the reason why I am here today is because I went. I, w- I wanted to look into an organization that worked with the Afghan community. And I found out Women for Afghan Women, the only one in the East Coast. So I went and I offered volunteering. And it has only been six months that I was in the state. And I was very homesick, very homesick. And that's where I found a home away from home with this community here in the in the U.S. And tell me about the work that Women for Afghan Women does in the U.S. and particularly in New York. We uh, have educational programs uh, that provides English as a second language classes for women. And we have preparation for citizenship test classes, as well as preparation for getting your driving permit test. Every year we have uh, between 180 to 200 students through our educational programs. Uh, Majority of them are Afghan, but we also have non-Afghan students. We 
of a youth leadership program under our education umbrella that have girls and boys leadership program. Our focus is on youth leadership and um, welcoming these kids, majority of them are immigrants or a few first generation, uh, welcoming them to United States, but also teaching them some of the cultures and 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 customs that are very different from Afghanistan through this prog- the leadership program, but also working with them on their leadership skills. And we have another program that's Youth Rising program that those are a, a youth ages 16 to 20 year old. And we work on college and career readiness. Majority of these girls who go to college are the very first to go to college in the United States or in their in anywhere. Um, so we work to make sure that they understand the system, they understand how to apply for colleges, and making sure that they do not drop out of school just because there is no one to guide them to get into the next step. Uh, and there, this was all our educational program. And then we have legal services. We have immigration attorneys who serve the community with any le- immigration legal needs. We also have case management uh, that we provide casework to uh, uh, family members who need anything from, for example, SNAP, uh, housing, Medicaid, Medicare, from that to also any other need that a woman or a family has. We obviously, majority of our work also is with the victims and survivors of domestic violence. We do a lot of education around sexual assault, dating violence, and domestic violence. Uh, but we also work with um, individuals who are survivors of violence. And obviously, you've been doing this kind of work. The organization's been doing this kind of work for many years. But again, if we go back to to what we were speaking of in the beginning, sort of how this moment um, feels different, um, how has the work changed over the past few months since the U.S. left um, Afghanistan? I'm sure you know that we are the largest women rights organization inside Afghanistan. And we have over 1,200 staff who are still in Afghanistan. So when things change in Afghanistan, our entire focus was how can we get our high-risk staff to safety? But beside that work of getting people out for safety, which unfortunately were unsuccessful to get anyone out through the emergency evacuation, but our work here also tripled because the community has gone through a lot. Any of us here has family back home, including myself. We still have family, we still have friends, we still have relatives that we are panicking about their safety. And people, our work tripled. Everybody would have called asking, how can I get my family out? What? How can I help people there? So we have uh, hired a full-time immigration attorney to be just working with the community on those cases, especially those who need on humanitarian um they need to apply for humanitarian parole or those who want to do family reunification and, and do a family petitions. We also have seen a lot of issues with mental health because this situation brought back a lot of trauma to many uh, Afghans. So we are hiring now, we are in process of hiring a full-time mental health counselor who will be available not only for people who are here, but also for the refugees that we will be welcoming in the next few weeks. Um, We are uh, working with partner organization to make sure that we get enough pro bono attorneys and mental health counselor who understand the language and can be of service for the community. 
I so appreciate your point about um, the need for mental health, the need for social support, even the language you used of uh, finding a home away from home after having left so much. I'm also wondering what other kinds of direct services and supplies um, are necessary, particularly um, for people who are coming as refugees, um, things that that maybe um, folks haven't necessarily thought about um, in terms of the kinds of needs that these um, women and their families um, have. I want to mention to all our listeners that Afghans who have left during this emergency evacuation did not bring a thing with them. They might only have a small seven to eight pound backpack with them. And they didn't even have access to their bank account when they left. The banks were frozen uh, when they were leaving Afghanistan and people has nothing. So they are starting from zero right now and they need anything and everything. So our organization with a group of volunteers raised money to purchase new clothing for these people because we heard of stories that people haven't changed clothes for over a month and they go take shower when they were in Qatar and they would sit in the sun to get to make their clothes dry. So we packed for 750 individuals, clothing, undergarments, shoes, socks, um, a full set for for adults and youths and children, and they are all ready to go when the families arrive at JFK. Uh, We work with the Port Authority at JFK to welcome the families who will be arriving in New York. We also have set their holding space where the refugees will be welcome first, their first experience of meeting, uh, landing on the American land. We made it culturally competent and made made sure that it's a warm place so that people can feel welcome. We also have worked with Port Authority. They needed interpreters and translators. So we got them over 200 translators and interpreters who are available and on standby that when the planes arrive here and we will be willing to um, meet them and, and make sure that to do the process for them as easy as possible. Within that uh, group of 200 individuals, we have uh, attorneys, uh, um, doctors, nurses, psychologists, therapists, as well as uh, public school teachers. Um, So that way, if there is a need for any of these professionals, we will be able to provide that. Uh, We also will be providing warm meals and uh, hot tea and coffee uh, through Afghan through an Afghan business who partner with us, who will be bringing the um, coffee truck and lunch trucks uh, by the airport, where when the families arrive, we'll be receiving a warm alal meal as well as uh, hot uh, tea and coffee. The organization received funding from uh, Airbnb and uh, Uber. So we will be able to provide temporary housing for families. Uh, A family can stay for almost a month at a place until we find uh, them a permanent home. We also um, will be able to provide them transportation for their appointments. As many of them, obviously, when they come now, they do not have that. We are um, also uh, will be able to work with them and uh, job placement and um, the organization, because we are the only one in East Coast providing all these direct services, have been working now in partnership with refugee resettlement organizations um, to make sure that we are, that 
the gap that they have between their services and the refugees' needs uh, will be felt by the by women for Afghan women. As you talk about these incredible and absolutely crucial wraparound services. You know, I, I live uh, in North Carolina, and I have, um, you know, been involved with sort of charitable organizations that are trying to assist with Afghan resettlement um, in recent months. And I have noticed um, a level of outpouring of community support that's very different than when we were working with these same organizations um, with Syrian refugees uh, and finding um, in that context so often we were um, battling against a community sentiment that wanted to expel Syrian refugees. It did not want Syrians in our community um, but but much more open to the question of uh, and the experiences of Afghan refugees. I'm wondering if you have seen something similar or if your experience has been different on that point. I think I have seen um, exactly what you have been experiencing and seeing it. Um, I think the situation in Afghanistan for many Americans, including myself, I think we feel responsible in some way of what mess has been created in Afghanistan, unfortunately. And I think that is one of the reasons why people, the ones who feel responsible, the ones who feel that this should have never happened there, we have had so much achievement, we should do something now to make, to fix this. And, and I have talked to, to thousands of Americans uh, in the past a couple of months, and every single person have been saying this, I'm sorry uh, for what's happening. And uh, I know it's not an individual's um, mistake. It's not uh, one or the other's mistake. But I think a lot of Americans feel that way about Afghanistan right now. And especially, uh, I'm sure you have seen the outpouring uh, support of the veterans getting their interpreters and translators out of Afghanistan um, because they feel responsible. uh, And they have been doing anything to make sure to get them out because they feel that they work for us and we put their life at risk now. So it's our responsibility to go to get those people out of Afghanistan. And that's why they have been so unified, so strategically working and fundraising and getting people out of Afghanistan. Naid Samari Baharam, Women for Afghan Women's U.S. Country Director. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me again. That's it for today's show. And remember, if you missed anything or you want to listen back again, you can pop on over to thetakeaway.org. Or even better, subscribe to our podcast and never miss another segment. I want to send a big thank you to Team Takeaway for all the hard work this week. Katerina Barton, Zachary Bynum, Jay Cowett, Shanta Covington, Mary Croak, Meg Dalton, Vince Fairchild, David Gable, Deborah Goldstein, Ethan Oberman, and Jackie Martin. And finally, this is a bittersweet day for The Takeaway as we're saying goodbye to our longtime executive producer, Lee Hill. Now, it's hard to capture the legacy of journalism, storytelling, and team building that Lee is leaving here at The Takeaway as he moves on to an exciting new role in public media leadership. Last week, our team gathered in New York City at an outdoor dinner and a celebration of our leader. 
And this is just a little bit of what it sounded like when our grateful team gathered to say goodbye. I'm, I'm here because of Lee. My purpose is to make great radio and tell stories that create change. I'm here to listen, to learn, and to look for people who are great leaders like Lee. Lee's amazing. I shouldn't tell you this, but <laughs> yeah. it's the best story there is. Yeah, yeah. And I just yeah, came for a little bit more of that. <laughs> And you're listening to The Takeaway. Joining me today to explain how we got here and what's ahead. So we're going to take some time today to talk about hope and resilience and those things that got us through the collective trauma. If there's no other thing you know or do tonight, get to know someone who you did not know before you came. And that's it. Thank you. Lee Hill. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. This is The Takeaway. Let's talk again on Monday.